following sermon was recorded live at Foundation Church of Fredericksburg in downtown Fredericksburg, Virginia. Grab your Bibles. We're going to be in John chapter 18. John chapter 18, verse 12 through 27 is what we'll read here. And uh, you may have caught on in, uh, in Sunday's past after the reading of God's word. I'll say, this is the word of the Lord, and uh, I'll, I'll repeat, thanks be to God. You're welcome to join me in that. It's just a simple way and a short prayer to give thanks to God for the reading of his word and the gift of his revelation. So I just want to invite you to, to say that with me afterwards. Simply, thanks be to God. So let's read John 18, verses 12 through 27. So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. First they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year. And it was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. And Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple, and since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest, but Peter stood outside the door. So the other disciple who was known to the high priest went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. The servant girl at the door said to Peter, you also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? And he said, I am not. Now, the servants and officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold. And they were standing and warming themselves. And Peter also was with them standing and warming himself. The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. And Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all the Jews came together. I have said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. And when he said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand, saying, Is that how you answer the high priest? Jesus answered him, If what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? Annas then sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself, and they said to him, you also are not one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, Did I not see you in the garden with him? And Peter again denied it, and at once a rooster crowed. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, this time now as we set our attention and our eyes on your word, work within our hearts to receive it by faith, to understand its meaning and relevance to our lives today, and help us to walk faithfully in light of this text. We're grateful, Lord, 
for Jesus' willingness to go to the cross and face his accusers, and we ask God for help in our own time of need, that we would be diligent as Christ was. As we look to the example of Peter in his moment of great weakness, that we would learn what it means truly to be a disciple that is committed to the cause of Christ, even at the cost of great danger. Lord, bear with us in our weaknesses, strengthen us, and help us to live faithfully as disciples of your Son, Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. You might have heard the expression, fair weather activity, and it's an expression that's usually reserved for some sort of outdoor activity that gets crowded or popular whenever the weather is conducive to that kind of activity. Mountain biking, hiking, skateboarding. Anytime the weather becomes clear or nice, you see more runners, walkers, skateboarders, surfers, whatever it may be, the outdoor activity is more enjoyable, certainly in better weather, but the diehard runners and the diehard skateboarders and surfers and whatever activity you'd like will do so no matter the weather. Rain, sleet, snow, if they can do it, they'll do that. And so the term for people who come out only when it's convenient and conducive is the fair weather person as opposed to the all-weather person. But, of course, that can refer to all sorts of things in life, not just outdoors activities, but anything that requires some kind of commitment through both the good and the bad times. Politically, we see fair-weather Republicans and fair-weather Democrats. We see all sorts of fair-weather people in different kinds of stages and realms of life. And this morning, we're going to talk about the difference between a fair-weather disciple and an all-weather disciple or a disciple that's committed to their discipleship of following Jesus, no matter the circumstances and difficulties that arise, and the kind of disciple that, when difficulties do arise, pull out. For the sake of convenience and comfort, decide not to follow Jesus in those moments. So, of course, we know that the world needs this sort of disciple, the the all-weather disciple, the kind that is committed no matter the cost, because it's in those moments where the test is put to Christians, where our metal is tested, that the world is looking. And when Christians shrink back from their responsibilities, their obligations, their commitment to Christ, it's precisely when the world will take what we tell them and believe what we really, truly are saying. That is, actions speak louder than words. Whatever profession of faith we may make and whatever kind of gospel we may preach, when the time comes and push comes to shove, we shrink back from trial instead of leaning into the difficulties of our life. We send a stronger and a greater message more clearly to the world that our loyalties lie not ultimately with Christ, but with ourselves, our comfort, our conveniences. And so we must not be only fair-weather Christians or disciples but commit to be all-weather disciples. Or if you'd like, we'll use the terminology convenient faith compared with constant faith. A convenient faith is that which only acts faithfully when it is convenient to do so, but a constant faith is constantly faithful despite the circumstances, however difficult they may be. Jesus, in our text, models constant faith Peter, in our text, models convenient faith, 
or the fair weather faith that we seek to avoid. What's happening here in our text is Jesus has just been arrested. We saw last week he went to the garden to pray, and Judas led this band of soldiers here to arrest Jesus with the high priests in their, their court to bring them back to stand trial for his teaching. They had, for several, ta- several months now, sought to arrest and kill Jesus, and they needed a pretense to make that happen. And so they, they set up a trial, a mock trial, but they set up something that would allow the accusation to stand and stick, even if the witnesses themselves would be contradictory, so that they can put Jesus to death. So Jesus' trial here in our text is before the Jews, before he's then brought to Pilate, who is the Roman governor of the time. And in this narrative of Jesus' trial before the Jews, we notice interwoven is Peter's own trial and his own interrogation by the members and the servants of the high priest's staff and household, the servant girl, the door, or those around the fire, the relative of the one whose ear was cut. And so while Jesus is asked to give an account of his teachings, Peter's asked to give an account of his discipleship. Jesus does not shrink back from intimidation. Peter, however, caves into temptation. He denies the Christ he once so ardently affirmed and even sought to defend with the sword just several chapters or several verses back. So Jesus is led to trial, and this trial takes place first before Annas, who is the high priest. He was deposed by Pilate's predecessor, but really was seen as the true high priest, even though others were appointed after him. In fact, his sons and Caiaphas, his son-in-law, would over the course of his life be the official high priest, but the Jews recognized Annas as the true high priest. He was the one, according to Mosaic law, which was to be high priest for life, and no Roman governor could depose him and end that. So that's why we see sort of the incontinuity between the high priest questioning Jesus and then him being led to the high priest Caiaphas later. So he's taken before Annas and then Caiaphas, though John here we see only records the encounter with Annas and not with Caiaphas, presumably because John understood as he writes his gospel that the examination and the trial before the Jews was really a sham. This was pretense in order to rush through the appearance of formal proceedings so that they could deliver Jesus over to the Roman authorities who would then put him to death according to their law the following day. In fact, they needed to do it quickly. This was, of course, night. All of these events took place at night, which was already a rare circumstance, but even possibly illegal according to the custom of the Jews. But here, considered important enough by the Jewish authorities to press through and forward through the night. See, Pilate only worked for a few brief hours in the morning. And so if the Jews wanted to bring Jesus before Pilate, they needed to make this trial happen as quickly as possible. He was arrested on Thursday evening, and the trial before the Jews happened over the course of the night so that he could be brought to Pilate on Friday morning and then sentenced to die and then be led to the cross. So the Jews have this appearance of formal proceedings, of legality, of justice, but we see very clearly in John's reckoning that there is no justice being done here. Hence, Jesus' own pushback to, to Annas and to the official, asking, you should bring forth the witnesses to speak on my account. 
In another passage in the Gospels, the witnesses that are brought forward can't get their story straight. They're conflicting with one another, simply drawing closely to the fact that this has been put together rather hastily and that none of the charges really would stick if justice were to be preserved, but no such commitment was made on behalf of the Jews, and so they simply needed an accusation that they could run with. In fact, this theme of appearances, I'd submit, lurks in the background of John's gospel all throughout. You see, the Jews here appear to be righteous and to love the law, but they know nothing about the law. The disciples appear to be bold and committed to Christ, but at this point they've all scattered and are watching from a safe distance. And only Jesus proves himself to be what he actually appears to be, but then even more so. He who appears weak and defenseless in this moment, notice twice he's, he's noted as being bound. He's actually the strongest person in the room, completely in control. And soon he'll display the ultimate power by being raised from the dead. Of course, things are hardly ever what they, they seem. So Peter and John, John would be the other disciple mentioned here with Peter, they head to Annas' house, following Jesus, where he was taken. And John's able to secure entrance into the courtyard and, of course, able to gain some kind of nearness to the ongoing proceedings. That's how John is able to record what's happening, that he was more or less in the room or in the court of Annas while it's happening. This, by the way, was not an official temple court that would happen later at Caiaphas. This is simply a home, and yet the formal proceedings still were allowed to take place despite the rules and regulations set up in God's word. But John is there. Peter is there. And John is interested in what's happening to Peter or to to Jesus in his trial, but Peter is less interested in the whole affair, it seems, and he soon finds himself in an interrogation of his own, an interrogation in which he denies being a disciple of Christ three times. And after these denials... The Gospels record that with each successive question, Peter will grow more and more agitated and defensive. Peter's prophecy about Peter is fulfilled, and the rooster crows, as he said it would. We're not told of Peter's reaction at this point, but the other Gospels do let us know that he immediately understood what had happened, and he wept bitterly. Jesus' prophecy about Peter is fulfilled And he cannot go where the master is going because he is not willing to go. So that's sort of briefly what happens, but there's so much more under the surface that I think is important for us to explore this morning. And I want to ask this initial question, is that why does John weave in Peter's story with Jesus' story instead of telling each one linearly? Why start with Jesus' arrest and brought before Annas, and then jump to Peter's and John's entrance into the courthouse with Peter's first denial, then back to the interrogation with Annas and Jesus, and then back to Peter's second and third denial. John is intending to show a contrast between Jesus and Peter, faithfulness versus faithlessness. So the question is, what is ultimately revealed in this contrast between Jesus' interrogation and Peter's interrogation? When both are put to the test, as it were, 
What's the contrast that we've seen between the two? What John is ultimately wanting to show is not simply that Peter is not a good disciple and that Jesus is perfect, but actually that Jesus is alone in his faithfulness. It's not simply to say Jesus is better than Peter, but that Jesus is alone in his faithfulness and his submission to the Father. He is alone in his willingness to do what is right in order to secure what is good. His disciples, and even Peter, have failed him. They've abandoned him. This is nowhere more strikingly seen than in Jesus' powerful and resolved declaration back in verse 5 when he asked who the band of soldiers seek. They say, Jesus of Nazareth, and his response is, I am he. Invoking what we see in Exodus 3, the name of God, the powerful covenant name of God, which throws others back on their feet. He is that Yahweh. I am he, in verse 5, but compare this with Peter's increasingly exacerbated, I am not. Twice he's asked, and his answer is not one that recognizes his affiliation with Jesus, but his distinction that he is not. This is the contrast. Jesus is Jesus alone. He alone is able to stand before his accusers and drink the cup to the very bitter end, as he told Peter he must do. So Jesus must go alone. And this is really John's point. Jesus must be alone as he goes to the cross. No one can go with him. They are unwilling and unable no one else is capable or worthy to go with Jesus to the cross to do what Jesus alone could do. So in reality, John teaches us that it was needful. It was needful for Peter to fall here. It was needful, important, necessary that Peter fall so that Jesus alone would be seen as the one who stands. He's underscoring Jesus' perfection and necessity to be for us what he alone can be. Not even the most bold and courageous of disciples could stand in the place of Jesus. But Jesus would, after standing, then bear up all his disciples in the end. The weakness of Peter is not unique only to him. It was all the other disciples who alone joined Peter, saying that I would surely defend with my life Jesus. But they all have scattered. They all have left him. Some stand at afar and watch, and some are nowhere to be seen. But Jesus stands, and in turn, he will bear up all of his disciples with his strength. One of the first lessons we should learn is that our boasting, then, like Peter's boasting, is often misplaced. Peter was foolhardy, rushed in, zealous, for the Lord. His loyalty was strong. His courage was great. But of course, courage and boldness is easy enough when the Savior is near. When Jesus is being arrested, it is nothing but a second thought for Peter to rush after those who are doing the arresting and try to chop off someone's head, miss and hit an ear. But now that Jesus is gone, arrested, seemingly unable to be taken back by force, cowardice, 
and expediency tempt us the moment we try to stand on our own. Peter has no real strength, no real courage in this moment. See, Peter's folly was that he believed he could do anything. But we would be wise to boast only in Christ. Peter will learn this lesson very quickly. What's important to take note of then for our purpose this morning is how Peter the bold, as I would call him, transformed him, transformed into Peter the cowardly. Why that transition? Why so bold with Jesus near and so inferior when Jesus was arrested? I think there's a clue here in verse 14. John recalls Caiaphas's words about the expediency or the convenience, the 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 practicality of taking Jesus out of the picture and John uses this as a motif around which to build the rest of the story this expediency it's more convenient to arrest one person and put one person to death instead of that one person leading a rebellion in which many then are put to death the Jews and Caiaphas here are concerned that a rebellion would take place and their comfort would be overthrown or worse They'd incur the wrath of the Romans, who did not want them to gain any more upper hand than they already were allowed to have. And so they thought, it's expedient for one man to die. In another gospel, Caiaphas has said, or sorry, in chapter 10 here, this gospel, Caiaphas has said, so that our land would be preserved. It's so that Israel would not be cut off, snuffed out. So his concern here is for the people of Israel to go on And so it's necessary then for one person to to die on behalf of the people. And John picks this up and says, yeah, that's really what's going on. It's about expediency. It's about making practical choices over principled ones. That's the motif and the setting by which the rest of Jesus' trial and suffering and crucifixion unfold. There isn't really a trial happening. Jesus pushed back against Annas and his officer who struck him. This is really just an act aimed at checking legal boxes before sentencing Jesus to death. Justice was replaced by expediency or convenience, if you like. It was more convenient to kill Jesus than it was to deal with his teaching and to face facts about what he taught about God's word. Peter's story then is woven here into Jesus's because I think that John intends for us to see that Peter's discipleship in this moment was just as expedient as the Jews own motivation to put Jesus to death they had their own reasons for expediency but Peter has his as well he has an expedient faith a convenient faith a fair weather faith just like the Jews had an expedient reason to put Jesus to death And all of this would lead to the abandonment and the death of Jesus on the cross. So we're going to spend time thinking about the nature of that kind of convenient faith that Peter here possesses. I want to give you really a contrast between convenient faith and constant faith. And four things that convenient faith lacks. First, convenient faith lacks clarity of who Jesus is. Convenient faith lacks clarity of who Jesus is. Of course, there's there's no doubt that the disciples began to understand in some small way that Jesus was indeed the Messiah. Peter himself confesses this 
When Jesus asks, who do you say that I am? You are Christ. And he's commended for this. He's given his name, Peter, rock, on which I will build my church in Matthew 16. But even now, the, God, the, the disciples have not fully grasped what it means that Jesus is the Messiah or fully grasped what it will entail that Jesus is the Messiah. Even though Jesus has over and over again told them that it was necessary for the Son of Man to be led to death. This kind of clarity about who Jesus would would only come from with the advent of the Spirit at Pentecost. We read about that in Acts chapter 2. And so it's the mistaken or the underdeveloped identity of Christ, but who we think he is, that leads many so-called Christians to live out a faith that hardly, if at all, resembles the discipleship of the New Testament. The reason that you can see other Christians live lives that don't comport with the rest of discipleship in the New Testament is because they actually follow the discipleship of a different Jesus. They do not have the kind of clarity that is necessary for biblical discipleship. Well, how do people understand Jesus if not as the Christ? Well, one obvious and common one is that Jesus is a moral teacher. And I mean this, by the way, Christians view Jesus more as a moral or ethical teacher than as a savior. They see the rules and the guidelines by which we are to live, love one another, turn the other cheek. We're happy to be Christians when we can adopt the sort of ethic that we enjoy that seems moral or upright and righteous. So Jesus is not simply the one who's come ultimately to save, to redeem, to, again, judge, but to teach and instruct. And so he's a moral teacher. Christians also see Jesus mistakenly as the austere elder brother, the one whom we're constantly disappointing with our own failures, that he's upset with us and disappointed in us, because he came to do what was right, and we always do what is wrong. And so there's a natural distance between the disappointed older brother in our family and the messed up little brother or sister who bothers him over and over again with our needs. But that's just a distorted picture of Jesus as him as simply a moral teacher. Still others see Jesus as merely a genie in a bottle. We can pray whatever we want in his name, and it will be given to us. Ask, and you shall receive, he says. Whatever we need, we simply pray, and he is our way to receive those things. With enough faith and enough prayer, all things should be ours. And lastly, we see people view Jesus and understand Jesus merely as a get-out-of-hell-free card. I don't want to go to hell. Hell seems like a terrible place to be. The preacher said I should avoid it, and so Jesus is my way out. Therefore, I believe in Jesus. I'll be a Christian. I'll follow him. When in reality, that is the least of Jesus' commands. Simply to believe to avoid hell is a benefit, but not the cause of our discipleship. It is belief in Jesus as the Son of God that sets us free from hell. Not simply a willingness to follow him so we may avoid it. So all of these views about Jesus miss who he really is. They don't have the clarity. And only a Christ who is fully God and fully man, 
perfect in obedience, absolute in authority, overflowing with tender mercy and compassion, who stands ready with open arms to save and forgive and to make new, and whose teaching and commands characterize the life of his disciples, only this Christ is clear enough in the minds of his disciples and strong enough and worthy enough to empower his disciples to strengthen us to live faithfully in light of the gospel. When we have a clarity about who Jesus is, then when faced with temptation or distress or trial, we can withstand those difficulties. But a convenient faith lacks clarity of who Jesus is. They understand him to be something other than what he has really come and revealed himself to be. Leads us secondly to our, to our second point, that convenient faith lacks courage to choose what is right. See, without a, a, a solid foundation of the identity of Christ on which we should build our discipleship, there will naturally be very little source of confidence for us than to make bold or costly decisions for Christ. That is, if we misunderstand who he is, if we don't have a clear identity of who Jesus is in our minds and in our hearts, there will be no confidence in our decisions for Christ if they are costly or inconvenient. Or maybe you have a very weak foundation. Maybe you've come to church enough to know more than he's, than he's a get-out-of-hell-free card, but there's cracks in your foundation. And those cracks begin to crumble and when they do, fear and doubt and temptation, as well as thoughts here, like Peter's, of expediency and what is practical, will begin to flow in and threaten the entire structure. Notice Peter's courage is suddenly zapped by the maid at the door because of the temptation of self-preservation, which seemed, at that moment, a better friend than the man who will soon stand trial and execution for Peter's own sins. His valuation of comfort, convenience, his fear overwhelmed his commitment and his courage to choose what is right in that moment. And so too, where our own ability and zeal to choose Christ over convenience will wane as our courage is replaced with cowardice. And of course, we wouldn't like to think of ourselves as, cow as cowardly, but often our cowardice masquerades or is baptized as charity. To be a nice person or to be a good neighbor, we fail to speak or to do or to say or to act in ways that are necessary. We fail to choose and make decisions, though costly, because they are right in the name of charity, of being kind. And brothers and sisters, I am all for charity and all for kindness and love and being a good neighbor. But when those things like charity and love and neighborliness come at an intersection against those decisions we must make for the cause of Christ, for what is right, we must choose what is right. Cowardice baptized as charity, but a rose by any other name would smell as sweet, as they say. So consider the countless decisions we will be forced to make in our lifetime that will testify to the cross or not. Countless decisions, countless opportunities and choices to make that in doing we will testify to the worthiness of the cross or to the unworthiness of the cross. If in our minds, in hearts, however, there is no real cross and there is no real Christ because we have misunderstood who he is, 
Where will we come down on any choice that pits our immediate good, our immediate comfort, against the glory of God? When we're forced to choose Christ over ourselves, if Christ is small, misunderstood, if we lack courage because we have no confidence on which to build our discipleship, what kind of decisions will we then make? And so a convenient faith lacks clarity of who Jesus is. It lacks courage to choose what is right. And thirdly, convenient faith lacks conviction to stand for what is true. It lacks conviction to stand for what is true. See, not only did Peter deny his discipleship, his affiliation with Jesus, he shrunk back from this wicked authority, this institution, with no commitment to justice or to peace. He had no interest in pushing against injustice, in corruption. And that kind of corruption and power and greed were hallmarks of the religious elite in this day. And Peter's expediency here, not just the Jews, but Peter's expediency counted it more favorable to distance himself from, from rebellion against the status quo that Jesus was being charged with instead of standing in righteous opposition to it by remaining steadfast and loyal to Jesus. He made the choice. Instead of standing with Jesus and pushing back against injustice and oppression and corruption and greed and lawlessness and unrighteousness that ran rampant in the religious elite as they, they abused and misquoted and twisted scripture, expediency in Peter's mind actually made him distance himself from that. Not only did he lack courage, but he lacked conviction to stand for what is true. See, it takes a faith that is rooted in conviction for the truth that will stand against the eroding tide of injustice and inequity and equality in the world. The kingdom of God, as, as the prophet Isaiah envisions it in his letters, is one of perfect justice and of perfect peace. But that picture of God's kingdom cannot become a reality unless citizens of that kingdom, Christians, disciples of Jesus, are willing to stand for truth now. I won't tell you every battle that we must stand for truth on. Some are obvious. Some take some discernment. But if you're like me, you may struggle with how to best navigate the sort of cultural and political difficulties in the landscape of our current times. Quite often, you may find, as I have, that the answer is expediency. That is, whatever rocks the boat the least and still lets us get on with our life. Well, however we'd approach the pressing issues of our day, whether that's abortion or LGBTQ+, or divorce and remarriage or immigration, or whatever hot-button topic you'd like to get an argument with your friends about, we must never sacrifice the truth on the altar of convenience or expediency. And often, and I think more often than we'd like, it will require a sacrifice of our convenience and comfort on the altar of truth. Convenient faith has no conviction to stand for what is true. Lastly, convenient faith lacks a commitment to endure what is difficult. If you possess convenient truth or convenient faith, you will ultimately not last. Convenient faith, by its very nature, will not last. It is like a house built on sand, which crumbles and washes away with the tide of difficulty, of trial, of persecution, of opposition. Or it is like the seed, which grows on rocky soil, but has no roots, 
or that which is choked out by weeds. If there is any hope to endure the difficult seasons of life or the pressing hardships of persecution, a faith and only a faith rooted in expediency will not suffice. A faith rooted in expediency will not suffice, but only a faith rooted in a commitment to endure what is difficult will. And so we see that a convenient faith, the one here possessed by Peter, lacks a clarity of who Jesus is. He's misunderstood and have forgotten what he has once confessed, that Jesus is the Son of God, the Christ, the Messiah. It lacks a courage to choose what is right, instead shrinks back. The conviction to stand for what is true and allow corruption and unrighteousness to prevail, and it lacks a commitment to endure what is difficult because it has no real roots. And these, the lacking of these qualities can, can certainly shipwreck a faith. But such convenient faith doesn't just manifest itself in, in dramatic moments around a campfire like it does here, or when you're staring down the barrel of a gun. The fruit of convenient faith sprouts from the seeds planted in our everyday lives. In other words, the choice to do what is right and to stand for the truth begins at the breakfast table, not in the garden or at the cross. At that point, it's too late. The convenient faith in the seeds which are sown will produce fruit that is unable to stand in the day of trial. Jesus' faith, however, was not convenient. It wasn't fair weather. He had a constant faith. Constant faith is really just the opposite of convenient faith. It's clear about who Jesus is. He understood himself to be on mission from God. He knew that he was the Son of God, and his Father had sent him for a particular purpose. Constant faith, rather, is clear about who Jesus is, and it takes courage in the fact that he has all authority in heaven and on earth. Constant faith is rooted in the conviction that Jesus is the truth of God and so stands on that truth as the foundation of our lives. Constant faith remains committed to the cause of Christ even and especially when it would be easier and more expedient to simply flake and minimize the demand of the Master's way over our lives. See, Jesus models for us all the enduring commitment to the Father's will that cannot be shaken even in the face of mortal danger. So friends, the world needs Christians that possess constant faith. Too many so-called Christians possess a convenient faith that when pressed and tried, crumble under the weight and the burden of expediency. So where is your faith today? Do you find yourself wavering at times like Peter in difficulties and in trials? Have you traded your discipleship in for something more convenient or at times socially acceptable because the burden of Jesus' yoke seems unbearable in that moment? And that conversation with your work partner, in that party with your students, in that conversation with your family members or the stranger in the coffee shop. Brothers and sisters, if this is true, you have gravely misunderstood two things. First, Jesus' yoke is easy and his burden is light. And it's precisely this because he has borne the true burden for your soul. 
The fact that his yoke is easy and burden is light is because he carries the heavier load of condemnation for you. There is no performance or righteousness required of your own. He does it for you. The cross you're to bear is simply one to follow him in discipleship. He bears your cross of penalty for shame and sin. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, but those who are following Christ Jesus still are to pick up daily their cross, die to themselves. That yoke is easy when you know that Jesus has borne the heavier burden and yoke for your soul. So it is, in essence, a non-burden or a non-yoke, but it is still something we put on ourselves because he is our master. We follow his doing. He has borne our grief, our sins, our iniquity, and so comparatively, how light can the burden be that he places on us? He bears our sins, and so we submit ourselves to his word. Jesus' yoke is easy, and if we walk around Christians in this life thinking that his burden is heavy and his yoke is not light, then we have fundamentally not only misunderstood who he is, but we have misconstrued his teaching to be a law and a burden to us when it was indeed meant to set us free. Jesus' yoke is easy and burden is light, but that's only the first thing we've misunderstood. The second thing we fail to do is realize that though we may fall, we will not as Christians ultimately fail. Jesus restores those who, like Peter, rush headlong into temptation or whose foot slips off the path of the narrow way. And Peter, even as an apostle, will do it again. Paul confronts Jesus or confronts Peter when he strays from the gospel and ignores the Gentile believers in preference for the Jewish believers. Paul rebukes him. So constantly, feet are slipping off the path of the narrow way. But Jesus ultimately restores his people. So though we may fall, we may not ultimately fail. He keeps us. The passage, by the way, that I sought to read from a week or two ago is in Luke 22, not 9. There are two instances where they argue about who is the greater. Jesus turns to Peter after he's arguing with the others and says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Well, two weeks ago, I focused on the fact that Jesus was the one who was praying, interceding, and therefore we are kept. But here, notice that Jesus prays that their faith may not fail, though he may be sifted, and he will be. Here is the sifting happening. Though he falls, Jesus prays that his faith may not fail. And not only that, but he will be restored, strengthened, so that he may turn again to his brothers and strengthen and encourage them. And this is exactly what Peter does. Just later in John chapter 21, look at verse 9 of chapter 21, and then we'll skip to verse 15. We'll study this in a few weeks when we get to it, but I think it's relevant to read. 21 verse 9, notice the repetition of the charcoal fire, which clues us back into this moment of denial. When they got out on land, this was after the resurrection, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. Verse 15, when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to them, yes, Lord, 
You know that I love you. He said to them, him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to them the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Surely, truly, I say to you that when you are you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted, but when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you to where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after this, he said to him, follow me. Such a beautiful picture of redemption that would have made an indelible mark on Peter's life and discipleship ever since. Jesus asks Peter three times, mirroring the the three-time denial that Peter made to Jesus there in the courtyard. And each time, Jesus affirms Peter's newness in him. And he welcomes him again, not simply as one loved by Christ, but restores him to fellowship. He says, follow me. Jesus is strengthened because Jesus' prayer that his faith would not fail. Now go to Acts chapter 2, just a few pages away. This is the Peter warmed by the fire of Christ's redemption. In verse 14, Peter now proclaims boldly what he shrunk back to do there in the courtyard. Acts 2, verse 14. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. Notice he's quick to speak now. These people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. In the last days... It shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. And even on my male servants and female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above, and signs on earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness, and the moon to blood. And before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. It shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosening the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I might not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh will also dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the path of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. So brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that, both, that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us today. 
being therefore a prophet and knowing that God has sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of, of that we all are witnesses. And therefore, being exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says that the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. So let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucify. There is the courageous Peter that failed to speak on that night. There is the courage and the commitment and the conviction that Jesus is true Son of God. And it happens because he was restored. He happened because he understood that the burden to bear of being Jesus' disciples is a light burden. And that though he may fall and has fallen and will fall again, he will not ultimately fail for Jesus restores him, has called him, has bid him to follow Peter does exactly what Jesus intends for him to do. Peter's transformation from a hot-headed fisherman to a disgraced disciple to a redeemed apostle is only possible because of the grace and the forgiveness of Christ there in chapter 21. See, Peter knows what repentance and forgiveness really means. And he will ultimately follow in the footsteps of his master in proclaiming that good news. He would do it to his death. This is, of course, all good news. The irony of this entire situation in John is that Caiaphas is essentially right. Although, of course, he spoke better than he knew at the time. He was right that it was better that one man would die for the people. Jesus says as much in Matthew 20, verse 28, The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. What Caiaphas did not know was that he was actually ushering in the fulfillment of God's purposes of redemption through the crucifixion of Jesus. What he thought was expedient was exactly according to plan. It was necessary for the Son of Man to give his life as a ransom for many. It is indeed better that one man die so that many may live. Jesus understood this better than Caiaphas ever could, and that's why he went faithfully and willingly to the cross. And unfortunately, Caiaphas' hope that through the death of Jesus, the nation of Israel would be spared from destruction, he was mistaken. The death of Jesus was ultimately a judgment to Israel, and it would be their undoing, as Paul talks about in his letter to the Romans. Yet the sufferings and the death of Jesus, as well as all of God's purposes for his death, these are not done for the sake of expediency or convenience. Jesus' assumption of, of a human body his, his subsequent humiliation and his death was not a convenient solution to a problem that happened to spare the most blood. It was the will and plan of the Father before all creation that one die for many. The life and the death and the glory of Christ was God's perfect plan for all time. Paul says in Ephesians 3 that this was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So friends, to be a disciple is not to be perfect. 
It's not to always say the right things or to win more souls to Christ than anybody else. These things we will never do, we will never be. Rather, to be a disciple is to be imperfect, and it's to fall, but then be held by our perfect Savior, be caught and restored by our unfailing King. It is to be resolved and committed to the cause of Christ, bearing our own cross as he has borne his, and resting in his grace for the strength needed to endure. When faith is constant, our discipleship will be fruitful and flourishing, and God will receive glory for the lives we live. Let's pray. Father, we give thanks to you for the example of Christ and his modeling of constant and perfect faith. He did not shrink back from his accusers or from the cross, but confidently, with conviction, took steps towards his own death, that he indeed would be a ransom for his people. Help us, Lord, see and examine our own lives where our our faith is more convenient than it is constant. And by your strength and grace provided by the Spirit and with the example of Christ before us and the many other faithful Christians who have followed in his footsteps, may we walk faithfully in constant, committed conviction and faith, clear about who Christ is, sold out to the purposes of your work in our lives and in the world. May we not be one whose discipleship is deficient, but whose faith is constant, rooted in Christ and in the gospel of his life, his death, and his resurrection. And may we all choose Christ, that those who deny Christ before men would be denied by Christ before the Father. And so we affirm our allegiance to Christ now as his disciples and pray, Lord, for help and our faithfulness to that end. We love you as always and pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Our All sermons heaven, are released under a Creative name. Commons, non-commercial, no derivative 3.0 license. If you would like heaven. to learn more Give us or listen to past sermons, please visit us, us at foundationfxbg.com. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory, now and forever. Amen. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.